You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. We want to continue to go through the book of Genesis. And so if you got a Bible, open to Genesis chapter 27. And we're going to look at the story of Esau today. Um, we, we've divided Genesis into six patriarchal parts uh, with, with Adam and Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And uh, we're finishing up Isaac's section today as we look at his blessing of Jacob and the cursing of Esau. Really going to focus on Esau and how, how, uh, what his fate is and what that looks like and, and how he was uh, actually cursed by God and, and why, why God did that and, and why God even uses the word hate to describe his relationship with Esau. You know, as, as we look at the reality of the Bible, God's wrath is very present. Uh, hell is very real. And it's, it's not really popular to preach about those things or talk about them. It, it'll get you canceled in today's culture. Um, but the culture only wants the warm parts of the Bible, not the hot parts. And what it leads us to is picking and choosing of God's word. Let me tell you, if you worship Jesus, you need to love the word that he loves. Um, Jesus affirmed the Old Testament. Jesus taught uh, the doctrines of the Old Testament. When we jump into the Old Testament and see some of these narratives that are hard for us to understand or comprehend, um, sometimes it's easy for us to write that off and say, well, God changed or changed the plan, new, new covenant stuff, Jesus only, that kind of thing. Let me tell you, if you want to worship Jesus fully, you have to worship him as God and you have to worship God for who he is. And that includes um, his love and his wrath, his holiness, all the attributes of him wrapped up into who he is. And so if God has no wrath at all, then he is unjust, and we don't worship an unjust God. Um, And if we ignore his wrath, we don't worship him fully for who he is. A couple of weeks ago, I shared a hard truth with you that God doesn't love everyone. And people, some of you even came and talked to me about that. How is that true? And I want to kind of sit in that uncomfortableness. And so if you're, if, if you're hearing that and you don't like that, that's okay to not like that. But I, I, wanna, I want you to not argue with me or, or wrestle with me over that. But I want you to wrestle with Scripture. What's the Bible say? Because ultimately the Bible is God's revealed word to us. Let me preface today's sermon with Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Um, this prophet of the Lord says, I've loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved? Us is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of Hosts says they may rebuild, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Those are harsh words. And so you could try to argue that God doesn't hate anyone in the Bible, um, but in the Bible, you would be proven wrong. There's at least one guy in Scripture that God hates. Listen, I tried to get out of it this week. I looked at the Hebrew, and I studied all these things that smart men have written and tried to figure it out. Like You look at the original language, and it can't really mean hate. No, it means hate. Then then it's quoted in Greek in the New Testament. still means hate. Um, God's wrath and anger is against these people forever. Esau and his descendants, a nation called Edom. Malachi 1.4 says that the Lord is angry with them forever. You ever, you ever watch The Office? Heard of this show? There's a character in The Office called Toby. He's the HR guy. 
And everyone just hates Toby. And, and he's awkward and whatnot, but like you, get, you get to a point where you're like, man, this guy gets a bad rap. It's kind of unfair how much everyone hates him. And, and, and in our human uh, flesh, we're going we're gonna to feel that way toward Esau because Esau is going to be treated very unfairly in, in the story we're going to look at today. But, but God's point when he speaks to his children and he says, have I not loved you? Let me show you how I've loved you. And he says, Jacob, I've loved and Esau, I've hated. That, that somehow that, that we can see God's love greater for seeing his wrath. We can appreciate God's love deeper when we can see his just vengeance against sin. You know, like, like, if there's ever a time in your life, if, you, if you've repented of sin and trusted in Jesus and you've become a Christian, listen, if there's ever a time that you feel like you're not loved by God, just remember, you should be in hell right now. That what you deserved was eternal damnation. And God has shown you love. And so when you look at your circumstances and say, man, things, things really are going bad for me and maybe God's mad at me. No, the Bible pulls back the curtain enough to show us what God's anger looks like. And it's nothing like what has fallen upon you. But let's not dodge these difficult circumstances and doctrines in the Bible. Instead, let's look at them and uh, let's, let's spend some time diving into them. So I got three that we're going to look at today. We're going to look at God's justice, his election, and his patience in the story of Esau. Now, we're going to be tempted, again, to say that's not fair. My kids sometimes will say that to me. I told you a week or two ago that um, in my house, I just say because I said so. It's a monarchy. It's not a democracy. It's not communism. They don't all get the same. When they say, hey, it's not fair, we just say, it doesn't matter what you think, right? That's what loving parents do, okay? Um, only a few of you are laughing. Some of you are like looking up CPS phone number. Like I'm, I'm partially joking, but I'm partially serious too, okay? Um, <laughs> but... In Genesis 27, uh, we're going to see this narrative of a father and his twin sons, and he's at the he's at the end of his life. He's an old man, and uh, if you let me remind you that Esau had already squandered away his inheritance, his birthright. Uh, he went on this Bear Grylls trip, and and he thought that he was going to die, and so he traded all of his inheritance that he would receive as the firstborn son. He traded it for a bowl of Denny Moore stew, and um, and, and so he's already lost all the material things, and he's hoping to salvage um, this blessing, this kind of spiritual blessing that he's going to get from his father. And, and, and we're going to see how that plays out and how he ends up not getting that. In chapter 27, verses 1 through 4, by the way, I'm going to cover chapter 36 as well today, if you want to write a little note. We're going to jump over to 36. I know it's weird to cover 36 early, but just trust me, i got a process. Um, verse 1 says, When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son. And he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver, your bow, and go out um, to the field and hunt game for me. And prepare for me delicious food such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now, for the sake of time, I'm not going to read the whole narrative. There's a little bit of repetition in it, but if, if you've read ahead, you know, and if, if you've ever read it before, or you can read it more this week, but let me just kind of summarize what happened. So uh, Isaac's old. I love he says, behold, I am old. Um, and so he, he knows that he's going to die somewhat soon. At this point, he's, he's blind. He's not able to see. And, and he tells Esau, hey, the end of my life is close, and it's time for me to just give this kind of prophetic blessing over your life. And he just wants to do that with a good meal, as any man would. And so he's like, go and, and kill an animal and, and make me a good dinner and come back, and I'll bless you. And, and Rebecca 
remember her favorite child is Jacob. And so she hears this plan, and when Esau goes out to hunt, she grabs Jacob, her son, and she says, hey, we're going to pull the old switcheroo, oldest trick in the book, right? We're going to pull the old switcheroo over on your dad, and you're going to go in, and you're going to give him a meal, and, and he's going to bless you instead of blessing Esau. Well, Jacob says, that sounds like a good plan, Mom, except for one problem. Esau is hairy. It's literally what his name means. Um, and so Esau is so hairy, he says, well, what if my dad touches me? He's going to know that, you know, I'm smooth and, and my brother's hairy. He's going to know it's me. And so uh, Rebecca's got a plan. She says, go and get two goats. She goes and we're going to slaughter the goats. We're going to make a goat meal. And then she takes the fur of the goats and puts it on Jacob's hands. Um, apparently Esau was basically Sasquatch, apparently. And um, so he, they take this goat fur Put it on the hands and arms of Jacob and put it around his neck so that when um, Isaac reaches out to feel him, to touch him, um, that, that he will think that it's Esau. Okay? So that's the plan. Uh, they go in with the disguise. I'm sure Jacob looks absolutely ridiculous. He goes in and he convinces his dad that he is, in fact, not Jacob, but he is Esau. Um, his dad expresses lots of doubt. He says, you sound like Jacob. Let me feel you. Let me make sure it's you. He touches him. He feels the goat fur. And he's like, well, that feels like Esau, my hairy boy. And, um, and, and so he ends up, he's a little bit hesitant, but he ends up blessing Jacob instead of Esau. About the time that Jacob leaves after receiving that blessing, uh, literally as Jacob's leaving, Esau's coming back with the meal that he's prepared uh, for his dad. He comes in and, and of course, Come to find out, he's already blessed who he thought was Esau, but he's blessed Jacob. Esau weeps, he's, he's distraught, he asks for a blessing, and instead, Isaac gives a prophetic utterance of curse to him instead of blessing. Um, now, this is a, a strange story, but again, I want you to, to remember this. Rebecca, she's, a, she's an important player in this story, she had inside information. Remember when she was pregnant, God told her that Jacob was the chosen one whom the promise of God would go to, not Esau. So what Rebecca is doing is she is putting work toward bringing about the plan of God. Now, don't excuse her. She's not an innocent party. She does it in an ungodly way, a deceitful way, a, a way that is dishonest and full of lies. But she is seeking to bring about God's plan. Now, now what this shows us, one principle that we can learn from this is that God allows us to work within his plan and to even bring about things through our actions, which is just mind-blowing to me. Because when we see the sovereignty of God, nothing is going to happen outside of God's will. Nothing. But, but in that, prayer causes things to happen that wouldn't happen if we didn't pray for them. Our actions bring about things that wouldn't happen if we didn't carry out those actions. Uh, my favorite illustration of this is Matt Chandler says that our life is like a cosmic take-your-kid-to-work day, that our Heavenly Father kind of brings us along. He's in charge of everything, but ultimately he'll let us push a button every now and then. And, and it's similar to the way if I take my boys and I say, hey, we're going to get dressed today, you can put on a blue shirt or a red shirt. They, 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 can, they can choose, right? They have a real choice, and they can move within the Father's plan, but they're not, they're not going to McDonald's without a shirt on, right? You have to... Got to put a shirt on. That's the Father's plan. And so the Father allows us to move and pray and, and bring about things through our actions, but everything is going to fall into his plan. Nothing happens outside of God's plan. And so this morning, I want to ask you, what are you praying for and working toward in God's plan? You should pursue it in a godly way, not a deceitful way like we see in Jacob. 
But, but what we see is that we ought to pursue God's will. Now, Jacob's action and how he pursues it actually hardens Esau's heart, and rightfully so. And so we're going to see this seeming injustice to Esau, but we're going to see how it works out in justice in God's vision of things. In verse 41, it tells us what Esau's reaction is to this whole thing. And I think Esau's reaction proves the wickedness of Esau's heart. Because we could look at it on a service level and say, he's a pretty good guy, nice Bigfoot Sasquatch here, um, but he seems nice enough. But then his heart is revealed in his reaction. Verse 41 says, Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. You see, God's sovereign choice of Jacob did not force Esau's sin but when God's choice was illuminated, it revealed the wickedness of Esau's heart. And it, it actually presents a very perfect case study for how God's justice is not always clear to us. Paul uses this as a case study in Romans chapter 9, that when we don't understand things, um, he uses Jacob and Esau as a perfect example of things that doesn't make sense to a human brain. But to God, it is within his justice. We can look at this and we can say, man, Esau kind of got a raw deal. And it'd be easy for us to say, well, God's not fair. But Paul says this in Romans 9, 10, not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So God ha has a sovereign plan that is good even when we look at it and don't feel good about it. You know, you can be frustrated by God's plan. You can be uncomfortable with God's plan. But let me call you to this belief that God's plan is good and that it is just even when it doesn't feel like it. You see, God's justice is not always clear to us, but it's always coming. It's always on the way. And this doesn't negate by the fact that there are actual injustices that happen in life. There are things that have happened to all of us that are not fair and that are not right, that are evil. Many of you uh, have, have encountered severe injustices, either currently going through or in your past have shaped your, your thinking and, and the trauma of your past has shaped even who you are, and it's not fair at all. It's unjust what has happened to you. Let me just take an aside for a moment and let me, let me give you four things that you need to understand about injustice in your life, personally. When things that are not fair happen to you, unjust things come upon you, here are four things that you need to understand. And the first one's a hard pill to swallow. The first one is that God has allowed them. God's all powerful. He could stop them. God has allowed the injustices that have happened to you to happen. You don't have to like that. You shouldn't like it. You shouldn't be thrilled about it. And you don't have to understand it. Sometimes the purpose might be revealed in your lifetime, but most often it's not. And this side of glory, you'll never understand it. But you trust the sovereign God that even when unjust things happen to you, you need to know God has allowed that to happen. Secondly, you need to understand it's not always a result of action, right or wrong action. It's not always a result of sin. 
It's not this karma that's coming for you because you did something wrong. One of my favorite stories in the Gospels is there's a blind man that's brought to Jesus, and they ask him, well, what happened for this man to be born blind? Was it a sin that was committed? Did his parents do something wrong, and so then their kid was born blind? Is that why? And God, uh, Jesus says, no, it's, it's not because of any sin that's, that's been committed. The reason that he's born, born blind is so that God's power can be revealed through him this day. I mean, you just think of that whole man's life, how, how he could say, man, it's not fair that I was born blind and everyone else was able to see. But it was for God's purpose. So, number one, God's allowed the injustice. Number two, it's not always a result of sin. Number three, the injustice done to you never justifies wrong action on your part. You never get to say, I am sinning and I'm justified in my sin because of someone that sinned against me. You never get to say, I get a pass because of what's happened to me. You never get to say, I can do whatever I want, and I can treat people how I want, and I can disrespect my creator God because unfair things happen to me. God's law applies to everyone just the same. And the fourth one, and most important to understand and remember, God's justice is coming. We've read the end of the book, right? We know at the end that Jesus is going to put away all injustices, that he's going to return, that he's going to make every wrong case right, that he's going to wipe away every tear, that he's going to bring us into his presence forever, and there will never be injustice ever again. But for now, it's all around us. In this story of Jacob and Esau, we also see an act of love, sacrificial love. Rebecca Uh, The mother is willing to step into injustice for herself uh, to help Jacob. Rebecca, I I think, is arguably the most righteous person in Genesis, at least up to this point. Uh, And and Jacob hesitates on the plan, rightly so. It's kind of a crappy plan, just being honest, but um, somehow it works. But in, in verse 12, Jacob rightly says, Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him. And bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. Notice that Jacob's not afraid of like just getting caught and getting grounded. You know, like he loses his iPad for a week or something. He, he's worried about if, 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 he, if he catches me trying to deceive him, then he's, he's not going to bless me. In fact, actually, he's going to curse me. And look at what Rebecca's response is. His mother said to him, let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go bring the goats to me. You see, there's a good lesson in this, is that for us, when we encounter injustice, we we should cry out to the just God that we worship, and here will be your answer. Let your curse be on me, my son. Let your curse be on me, my daughter. Only obey my voice. And the beautiful truth of the gospel is that Jesus stepped into injustice on our behalf. This is what we preach as Christians. This is what we believe. It's what we base our life on. That the, the, the most unjust thing that has ever happened is the perfect and sinless man, Jesus Christ, was executed as a criminal. That's the most unjust thing that's ever happened. And he did it so that he could step into our place and bring us out of the, the punishment that we rightly deserved. And so that, that, that in itself throws our, 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 um, our frame of work for justice out of bounds. Like we cannot understand the justice of God. He stepped into the greatest injustice to treat us actually unjustly in saving people that didn't deserve to be saved. God's grace is so big and God's justice is so right, even when it doesn't feel like it to us.
That on the cross, Jesus was able to, to say, Father, forgive them. The centurion that stood by said, surely this is the Son of God. Historically, a guy named Longinus repents and places his trust in Jesus that he's able, he's able to be adopted into the family of God. Just this mind-blowing justice of God. The second doctrine is the doctrine of election. God's election, we see it highlighted here in Genesis 27. We see it in Romans 9. We see it in lots of different places in Scripture. The idea that God sovereignly chooses um, who he's going to save, who he's going to work through, how he's going to work his plan. And Paul's point in Romans 9 that I read earlier is and he's, when he's saying that God is not unjust, his point is that God has every right to sovereignly choose. That Jacob's election reminds us that our own election is not because of our righteousness. You were not chosen because you're awesome. Okay? If you're a Christian, you're, you weren't chosen to be a Christian because you, you're really valuable to the church. Okay? I know some of you are. Okay? I'm, not, I'm not trying to talk bad about you. But when I look at the example of Jacob, I see we're taught a lot. Right? Jacob was a trickster, a deceiver, a depraved sinner, just like y'all. Okay? And his choosing and the grace poured out on Jacob reminds us that we're not saved because we got it all together. Quite the opposite. God saves people who don't have it all together so people, the world, can see that God has it all together. You see, the message of the gospel isn't like, hey, look how good I am now that I found Jesus. It's no, look how good Jesus is that he would save a wretch like me. You see, look at verse 19. Jacob says to his father, this is just... Blech. This is gross when you read it because he, he's lying to his elderly blind dad. And in verse 19, he says, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up, eat of my game, that your soul may bless me. Sit up, dad, eat, and then bless me. It, it reminds me of that classic film, Dumb and Dumber. You remember the scene when they go in the diner? And they got the gas man with him, and he's got the ulcer and all that. And they put those ghost peppers on his burger when he's in the bathroom. He comes back and he says, What are you guys going to Aspen for? And Jim Carrey looks over and he goes, Won't you eat up and we'll tell you? And he's like giggling as he does it. I mean, this is, this is literally what Jacob's doing. He's like, Go on, Dad, eat up and bless me. It, he almost makes it too obvious. And, and Isaac expresses all the doubt. And he continues to just lie over and over again to Isaac. Verse 20, Isaac says to his son, how is it that you found it so quickly, my son? He's like, how'd you go kill a deer that quick? And he answered, because the Lord your God granted me success. He even invokes the name of God in his lie. This is maybe the most truthful lie ever told, by the way. He, he's lying about the hunt. There was no hunt. He just killed goats and uh, cooked it with his mom and brought it in. But the truth in it is that the Lord God had granted him success, but not because he was good enough, not because he was righteous. It was through gracious election, as revealed before he was even born to Rebekah in 25, 23. The Lord says to her, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. And then they come in and they sort of treat the blessing like a mystical, magical formula. But in reality, what's happening is Isaac is just issuing a prophetic utterance of God. If you look in your Bible at verse uh, 26 through 29, you'll see that the, 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 the page breaks are different. And the reason that's the case is because there's rhythm and rhyme in the original Hebrew language there. And he's, he's prophesying 
the future of what God has decreed. And so Isaac becomes a verbal revelation of God's plan. His father Isaac said to him, come near and kiss me, my son. Verse 27 says, so he came near and kissed him, and Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, see, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you the dew of heaven and the fatness of earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers, and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be everyone who blesses you. And so this blessing comes upon Jacob in an undeserved way. And, and, and beautifully so, because it serves as an example to wretches like us that we would be blessed by a good God, not so that we can just have the best life. You see, the blessing that Jacob got wasn't so that his life would be easy. The blessing that Jacob got was so he would find his place in bringing about God's plan. Yeah, and it's the same for you. The blessings that you have, the things that God has given you and blessed you with, you're merely a steward of them. God has chosen you to have them so that you can bring about God's plan around you. In the place you live, in the place you work, in the people that you influence and share the gospel with, God has blessed you to be a blessing, not just to make you comfortable while you wait for heaven. He called Abraham in chapter 12, verse 3, and he gave the same blessing that Isaac mutters to Jacob when he says, I'll bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. He didn't call Abraham and bless Abraham so he would be rich and have a nice house. He called him so that he would suffer, but in his suffering be a blessing to everyone else. Wouldn't that radically change your thinking if you look at everything that you own and you said, God didn't give me this to make me comfortable, but to make me uncomfortable. God's given me this house, given me this car, given me every penny in my bank account and every breath in my lungs so that I can bring other people to know him. Not so I can just sit back and be comfy. You see, not Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob deserved this covenant grace and election only leaves room for God to be glorified. We can't glorify ourselves with the blessings we've been given because we didn't save ourselves. We didn't bless ourselves. By the time Jesus is born and grows up in Israel, Israel had become a nation from the loins of Jacob that had become proud and viewed themselves as earning God's blessing and favor. Israel's election, though, was for the mission of drawing the elect from the nations. You read the Psalms, read Jesus' hymnal, right? It is full of calling all nations of the earth to come and worship the one true God. The chosen nation of Israel wasn't to be the only child of God, the only elect special nation. The, the chosen nation was chosen for the purpose of reaching the nations. If you've been chosen to be a Christian, i.e. if you've repented of sin and you are a Christian, that means God chose you to be that, you have been chosen for the same mission, to reach those far from him. And with the doctrine of election, though, necessarily comes this reality of the non-elect, the reprobate, the objects of God's wrath, and we see that in Esau. Maybe a prime example of that in Esau. In verse 38, Esau says to his father, after he comes back and realizes what's happened, he says, have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, oh my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. And Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. 
By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Isaac's prophecy about Esau would come to pass. Esau was a violent man, became more violent after this point, and he would give rise to a violent nation named Edom. And as Israel grew and became a strong nation, Edom did as well. And for 900 years, the nation of Edom served as a partially independent province that was still under the rule of Israel. They paid taxes serving the nation of Israel. They obeyed the the orders of the king and kings of Israel and Judah, fulfilling the prophecy that Isaac said, you shall serve your brother. Then in the ninth century BC, they, they eventually revolt against the kings of Israel. Under King Jehoram of Judah, they revolt. We see this in 2 Kings 8.20, which says, In his days, Edom revolted from the rule of Judah and set up a king of their own. And so they pridefully uh, withdraw from uh, Israel and set up their own independence, which would lead to a slow destruction over the next 200 years. And what we see is, the legacy of Esau is passed down from generation to generation to generation to uh, King Herod, the one who actually puts Jesus to death, being uh, in the lineage of the Edomites. That this, this curse just continues and seeps in deeper and deeper and deeper, and they become more and more hardened to the grace of God. Let's finish by looking at God's patience. As we fast forward a bit and look at Genesis chapter 36, we see a final legacy kind of recorded in Genesis for us of what happens to Esau and his family. This final legacy of Esau is listed. His large family, the nation that would be born from them, is chronicled in chapter 36. And we see in this record as well as secular record and and the biblical record and other books of the Bible that Again, they just continue on this path of wickedness. Uh, Genesis 36, 6 says, Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into a land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. These are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites in the hill country of Seir. And the chapter goes on with lists of names of, of descendants and kings that I won't uh, attempt to say, and I'll spare you that. But, but you can run some of these historical people, and you can actually see the wickedness that they carried out. The rest of this chapter chronicles that. And we know from the rest of history that Edom as a nation continued in their unrighteous ways for about 1,200 years. And we're tempted to look at this just because it, it just fills a couple pages of our Bibles and we look at Esau and say, man, he got a raw deal and all his descendants and how could God do something so wicked? But instead, I want you to look at this and ask, how could God be so patient? How in the world could God be so patient? God himself and God's people deal with this terrible nation for more than a millennium. The prophet Obadiah prophesies right before their destruction in verse 10 and 11 of his prophecy, because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. On the day you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. Most historians agree that that the nation of Edom actually assisted Babylon when they conquered the kingdom of Judah. And as that, as, as, as they raided God's land and, and 
enslaved God's people and took them away. And as Edom assisted in that, Babylon turned on the very people that assisted them and destroyed Edom. You see, Edom received the fruits of their wickedness and their destruction became just a tiny, tiny footnote in history. God preserved his people even through slavery and exile and hardship, but he cast Edom into damnation. But he didn't do it immediately. He waited 1,200 years. And I just look at this and say, how could God be so patient with them? How could he restrain his destruction for over 1,000 years? And I remember 2 Peter 3.8 tells us, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as 1,000 years and 1,000 years is one day. Some days one day with my kid feels like 1,000 years, right? <laughs> but the Lord, in his, his perfect ability is able to put up with sinners for thousands of years and in his grace make it feel like a day. And we are deserving of no better than Esau and the nation of Edom. Let me again remind you, you should be in hell right now. And I don't mean separated from the church on a path toward hell like ACDC. You're on a highway there. I, what I mean is, is you should not have breath in your lungs because of the high treason you've committed against your creator, because of the sin you've committed that is offensive to a perfect and holy God. You should not be breathing right now, and you should be tormented in hell this very moment. And you're not. And if you're here as a Christian, you've repented of sin, you're not because Jesus died for you and paid for your sins. And if you're here and you're not a Christian yet, the reason you're not in hell yet is because God is being patient with you. He's putting up with you. He's drawing you. The very next verse in 2 Peter 3 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now, in my finite Lincoln County educated brain, I cannot explain how these things are reconciled. But both of them are true and clear in Scripture that God chooses some to be saved, yet the curtain is pulled back a little bit, and we see God's heart that he does not desire lost people to to continue in their depravity, wishing, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So if you're here and you're wondering, is, is God going to bring justice for me? Did God choose me? Am I part of the elect? He's being patient with you and drawing you in. Can you just be obedient to him? Give him your life. I promise you will never regret it. He is long-suffering with sinners, and he teaches us to be the same not wishing that any should perish, not hardening ourselves, not refusing to share the gospel with people and be like, I don't know if they're elect or not. They're not acting like it. Well, neither do you. May we be long-suffering with sinners because we are just like them. We're full of depravity, but yet we're full of grace. And that's the difference. Some sinners are full of just depravity, and some sinners are full of depravity and grace at the same time. And all of us know people who are only full of depravity at this time. May our hearts break repeatedly until they're filled with grace as well. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.